Now this brings me to the final step in my argument. If the failures of the pro-state arguments are so apparent and the anti-state or anarchist position is so compelling, why then are anti-intellectual intellectuals so unsuccessful in making their case? The reason is that ideas don't spread on its own. For ideas to spread, it requires proponents of these ideas. And these proponents cannot live off love and air alone. Anti-intellectual intellectuals, too, require resources to sustain a living so that they can write and teach. And if they want to be effective in their work, they require an institutional support system that helps promote and distribute their ideas. This is the crux of the problem, then. True, the distribution of ideas, also unorthodox ideas, has become much easier in recent decades with the development of the Internet. However, this does not change in the slightest effect that 99% or so of all intellectuals are directly or indirectly supported by the state and that 99% or so of all institutional support of education and research is state-financed with predictable consequences. That is to say, there is simply not enough financial support available for anti-intellectual intellectual endeavors to turn the currently minuscule minority of principled anti-state intellectuals into the critical mass necessary to overcome the overwhelming odds in favor of the state. True, some anti-intellectual intellectuals have managed to slip through the cracks, and a few have even attained pampered positions within the current status education and research system. But these are institutional accidents which are quickly repaired within the system by either corrupting these individuals or rendering them institutional ineffective and freezing them out. Hence, there is no way around the insight that there are not enough anti-intellectual intellectuals around because there is insufficient funding to support them in larger numbers, compelling many potential anti-state intellectuals to choose other non-intellectual careers. Hardly surprising, the state had its hands in creating this situation, namely by doing its very best to destroy what I call the natural elites. Natural elites are men of independent wealth and independent minds. Competing as such most directly with the state's monopolistic aspiration as ultimate judge, natural elites everywhere are considered potentially dangerous by the state. Accordingly, to reduce this danger, the state has co-opted members of the natural elite into the state system and thereby made their wealth dependent on continued friendly behavior on their part, or else it has confiscated or threatened to confiscate their wealth, and in any case it has sucked them all into the very same education system as everyone else. To be sure, there still exist wealthy men. Indeed, more of them exist today than ever before but increasingly less of them can be described as independently wealthy because most of their wealth can be destroyed in the blink of an eye by the state. Nor is there a lack of intelligence to be found among these people. But as a result of decades of relentless educational propaganda, their once independent minds have become dulled, clouded and corrupted. 
they feel guilty about their wealth and dabble in politically correct so-called social endeavors to compensate for their alleged sins. And in any case, the rich and famous today embrace the very same easy-to-be-manipulated high-time-preference lifestyle of don't-worry-be-happy as the masses. Yet not all hope is lost, because there exists the Mises Institute, which within the 25 years of its existence has become the world's leading center of anti-statist intellectual work. And despite all efforts to the contrary, and however reduced in numbers and strengths, there still exists some remnants of a natural elite, as the presence of you, the supporters of the Mises Institute, proves. Together, with your help, the moral and economic perversion that is the state can be exposed. With some luck, we may actually initiate a genuine social revolution, namely the triumph of liberty and with it, unheard of prosperity over state tyranny, impoverishment, and waste. Or we may uh, at least contribute to the fact that matters do not become worse, or become worse only more slowly. And in any case, together we can take pride in the fact that we made a contribution to keep moral and economic truths alive. Welcome to the Noted Bitcoin Podcast. This is your host, Michael Goldstein, a.k.a. Bitstein, with my co-host, Pierre Rochard. Pierre, how are you doing today? Very well. Um, my son actually gave me a nickname, which won't surprise anyone. Uh, steak or beef. Uh, that's my uh, nickname now from my son, but I don't expect anyone else to call me that. Yeah, Please he don't. Just he call calls me, me Goldbug, which uh, yeah. is both endearing and insulting. Yeah, it is. Um, it's it's based on a character in Richard Scarry's uh, illustrated books, uh, Little Goldbug. Um, but from his perspective, it's purely endearing because he's never met Peter Schiff, so he doesn't have any 
concept of how negative that that name could be. Yeah, he's he's totally innocent on that. Um, yeah, well, you know, it's great to you know be here. Uh, we're already recording our annual episode for 2023. Living in the future. Yeah. Borrowing from the future. Yep. Today we have a special guest. We have Machek, who is the proprietor of Hive.one, which many people uh, will will probably have used before. It's a great uh, ranking system for Twitter influence. And, uh, you know, he's here to talk to us about identity and Twitter and social graphs and all of this good stuff. So, Machek, welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And uh, this is your first time in Texas, right? Yes, yes, very much. Yeah, welcome. So tell us about Hive.one. I mean, I, I gave a really bad introduction of what that is, but for those who don't know, mm-hmm. what is Hive.one? How does it work? Yeah, I mean, Hive.one is really more of a demo of what we're trying to build than um, the end goal in itself. Um, so. Maybe I should uh, start with a little bit of backstory how the how the project came to be. Um, several years ago, when um, I sold my previous company, I started. I, I was looking for um, next project to do to work on, and I started getting interested in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. But more than the the cryptocurrency itself, I was really fascinated by what I was seeing in social media around those things. So it seemed to me like an equivalent of a startup ecosystem was emerging on Twitter, right? Like the same dynamics, the same type of um, community structure I was seeing previously uh, in places like Berlin or Silicon Valley. I saw an equivalent of that on Twitter. So I was quite fascinated with with the dynamic. Um, And I wanted to become part of that community myself. So the the initial inspiration for this was that I just wanted to find key people in those communities that if I connected to, that will be my shortcut to those communities, to becoming an insider in those communities. And that was really the the problem that I was just trying to solve for myself. So I was like literally writing the first versions of the model on a piece of paper and trying to think, what kind of signal could I use to identify those people who kind of like act as hubs or leaders of those communities? and that, you know, like um, long story short, that that's, that's how we got to where we are. But the initial idea was that um, if you think of what is influence from the first principles, it's very difficult to answer that question, right? Because uh, people, like everyone uses that word, but when you ask them what that means, you will have like a whole set of different ideas and different definitions. So I wanted to really understand it. And you really you can only claim that to really understand uh, some concept if you can describe it in precise enough way to be able to measure it. So I wanted to have a metric of influence. And I realized that the best definition I could come up with is that um, it's a share, it's a share of, a, um, it's, it's your share in collective attention of a group. So you can think of this in the context of, let's say you're in a bar and there is a bunch of friends, right? And there is always going to be someone in that group when this person says, hey, let's go to, to a different bar. Everyone will sort of automatically get up and go, right? And there's going to be also a bunch of other people in that group when they do the same thing, like they will get ignored, right? And you could theoretically predict which, like, which person will, sh- will get which reaction if you had the data about like which person in that group collectively f- receives the most attention. 
And the same applies to any other group, and this also applies to Twitter. So that was the initial concept, right? Like if, if we can find a way to approximate how much attention each account receives, then we'll be also, also able to understand, you know, like quote-unquote influence. Since then, we got rid of that word, by the way. Like So um, um, if you go to Hive1, you will see that we, we're not using the word influence, we're using the word attention. Um, so we have an attention score because what we also like realized along the way was that what's really valuable in what we're doing is that we're giving you um, a very good tool to understand some dynamic in the system and calling this influence is an interpretation. It's a very good approximation of who's influential, but really what we're trying to do is to build a more fundamental metrics. We're trying to capture some social dynamics and express them mathematically. And we're trying to do this as precisely as possible so it can become building blocks for new tools, new ways of organizing. Um, yeah, I guess that's a long-winded answer, but I hope it, it gives a little bit of a background. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction in, in one of your blog posts, and we'll put them in the show notes. But you kind of gave the example of you have people who they get a lot of attention, but they don't necessarily have any influence. Um, people might just kind of, you know, see, I, I think you use Paris Hilton as an example of, of someone who, who is out there. And yet, you know, if she says something about some random thing that doesn't necessarily like move people to care about it. And yet you also have people like a Fed chairman who is not exactly uh, active on social media. And so it's not really drawing that much like kind of social media attention in particular, which is in this case, that's specifically what you're looking at. And yet the amount of influence that that person carries on the world uh, is is very high. And so there's there's sort of, there is a bit of a dichotomy there. Yeah. Um, so this distinction between Paris Hilton and the Fed chairman, um, since since then, like the, this blog post that you're, you're referring to is quite old. And since then I've been doing some more thinking on that. Um, and I think it's also useful to introduce the concept of, of, of power, or I sometimes make a distinction between what I call a political capital and a social capital, which is different from the, um, let's say, standard framework or like how these words are like understood by, by or like are used in, in different contexts by other people. I have my own definition. And the, the way I distinguish between them is that um, social capital is is, is bottoms up, right? So you only can influence me um, if I uh, um, agree to that, right? If I give you, I, like I can decide whether you influence me or not, right? Paris Hilton is that example. I can start, stop paying attention to her at any point in time. And if I do, then she has no influence over me, right? That's not the case for the Fed chairman. Like he has power, he has political capital, right? Because regardless of whether I pay attention to him or not, he has an ability to um, uh, like his decisions can influence my life in a meaningful way, right? Um, and that you still, you, you can kind of stretch it and you can still define this in the context of attention if you create a hierarchical system or of organizations, right? Because the reason the Fed chairman has that power is that some people in that organization pay attention to him. Um, I mean, they're obligated by the structure that inst this is institution imposes, but like, fundamentally that still is an attention flow right like if you if you describe this as a system it's still an attention flow between different actors and then there is an attention flow between actors between those different different organizations different institutions and you know it trickles down right so um 
I'm not sure if that's a cl clear answer to. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good mm -hmm. distinction. One of the things, uh, you know, I, I saw you at the uh, Bitcoin takeover, and we were, we were chatting about some identity issues, and I thought it was interesting to hear about some of the ideas you had around the sort of history of identity, because a lot of basically what Hive One is doing is trying to create these sort of identity graphs and have how do you have a more decentralized uh, way of creating identity as opposed to what we're used to, which is a nation state centralized form of identity. Everything is some amount of SQL joins away from like your social security number or, or whatever. Um, and you had a, a couple interesting ideas about like the history of like how we got mm -hmm. here because <laughs> it wasn't always the case that we had this nation state central identity. In fact, you know, my name Goldstein is because sometime in the in the past, you know, <laughs> government imposed names on uh, my ancestors. Mm -hmm. And so they had to, you know, adopt last names that could be brought into that system. Um, and that happened to many people around the world. Um, and yeah, so uh, do you have any thoughts on like, you know, yeah, so, so maybe let's start with um, defining, de defining the word identity, right? Because it's another one of these words that um, you will ask a bunch of people and they'll have different definitions. And that, that that's, that's fine, right? But I think it's very useful to start with. Um, okay, let's agree on what we mean by this in this conversation. So I, uh, the, the definition I, I use and has I, that has served me well is that I, I, an identity is a set of ideas that's associated with an ident identifier, right? So an identifier, um, you mentioned like a security number, um, um, security number, or um, you know I have an ID like European ID number, I have my passport number, but also my face, my voice. These things can be identifiers, right? And um, other people, so you guys have some ideas associated with my face, my, my physical appearance, right? my, my name, and that's my identity in this context. In this room, my identity is the ideas that you hold in your head about me. And throughout most of our history, we functioned in a society where identity was, a function, was just a function of this social interaction, right? You live in a, in a small community, in a village, and your identity was simply what other people in that village, uh, what kind of ideas they had um, associated with you know, your face, your name, your voice. Today, we live in a much different system where uh, there, is a, there is an infrastructure of formalized, um, uh, formalized identity systems where you have these identifiers issued by the state or issued by a bank or issued by some other organizations. And then there is a whole system, layered system of um, different attestations that are supposed to inform ideas that we should form uh, um, around that person who, who identifies with a given identifier, right? So let's say you have a degree, a, um, like a, a law degree from Harvard Law School, right? Um, that immediately, if you walk into a new room and you introduce yourself as someone who holds that degree and you speak about law, they will immediately give you a whole bunch of credibility on the topic, right? Whereas without that that identity system in place, you would have to prove yourself on given talks, topics, right? And that, that's again how how it's sometimes in, uh, interesting, perhaps, to think how different was was life in those um, everyday interactions before we had these systems, right? Because in a village, your identity was formed over a very long period of time. And let's say you've you've proven yourself as a hunter. 
you've proven yourself as I know someone who is very wise, right, over a long period of time, and that's that's how this credibility is formed. In our world, it's a combination of um, of these two different systems, right? Like on one hand, in your community, this still applies to some extent, but in many of our other interactions, it's based purely on this layered system that's a combination of a state and um, uh, institutional, like uh, different institutions build up that, that layer infrastructure that we all, uh, whether we want it or not, we, we all um, rely on. I see it as like proof of stake versus proof of work. Uh, and the, the Harvard lawyer, he's a staker. Uh, the guy who is just speaking the truth on the law and everyone's like, oh, that's, uh, you know, he, he knows the law really well. That's proof of work. And uh, I, I think that I, I feel no desire to, like, fix credentialism, right? You'll hear people say, oh, we need to have um, your degree should be on the blockchain. That way everyone can independently verify that you do have a degree from Harvard. I'm like, no, I want to go in the opposite direction. I don't want anyone to know that you have a degree from Harvard. You should be ashamed of that, first of all. And second, um, people should not trust you. They should verify. So you having a degree from Harvard is complete non sequitur. Um, and I didn't have to go to Harvard to know that Latin either, I'll point out. Um, so, yeah, uh, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing your guys' thoughts on that. Yeah, well, and I think a lot of that also comes about because we live in a, a age of, of fiat law, um, where I, I would say fiat law is where you think that legislation is the law. That is that um, law is something that is created by a government, put out there and now we have to all follow it as opposed to um, an emergent order of, you know, con contractual obligations that people have uh, with one another that establishes the law between those uh, contracting parties. Um, and I, I remember hearing an interesting uh, talk on, on, you know, these kinds of topics with law specifically from uh, Stephen Kinsella. And one of the things that he, he pointed out that is kind of beneficial of things like the sort of Roman civil law as opposed to the common law was that by codifying things in a simple form, everyone did have more of a chance of being able to understand the law by themselves, which in a sense means that each person can be a sort of independent node, uh, you know, kind of verifying the law. And if you come to them, it's like, oh, that doesn't sound right. Um, so that's kind of a it's tangential to this, but it kind of dovetails with it. Um, but yeah, we, we live in the system where because because the state has decided to, you know, corral us into certain identities, identity systems and the state has corralled us into this fiat legislation world. We get this like double whammy where you can show up with credentials and say, oh, look, I am the smart one. Don't listen to those other people. And at the same time, it really is harder for other people to even be able to make sense of things because it's it's those people with the credentials that are the ones who get to decide everything anyway. Well, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, law might not be the best example, but imagine that someone in your family gets cancer, right? And well, now you want to find the best oncologist in the world, right? Or the best the best oncologist you can you can get in touch with. But unless you're a medical professional yourself, unless you're ideally an oncologist yourself, I mean, how do you evaluate who's the best person to trust with your family's member's health, right? So it's not like that these credentials are um, like evil or useless, you know, they're, they're very useful. I mean, the reason we were able to build cities, we're, um, 
is because we have uh, specialization, specialization, right? So living in a village, in a small community might be more rewarding than, you know, living in a big city in many different ways. But it's also, or, you know, like this village from, from the past, right? In the sense that you establish all of this on, on this peer-to-peer basis. But at the same time, it's just impossible to extend that model uh, to, you know, the world we live in today, where we send rockets to, you know, t- um, to the uh, to the moon and so on. That's that's just not possible without that specialization. So what I'm what I'm getting at is that we, we do need some form of um, attesting once, uh, uh, you know, expertise on topics we ourselves are not able to evaluate it, uh, evaluate. But the system we rely on today is deeply flawed, right? So we're um, on, on our team, we're trying to think a lot about what could be an alternative to that that would um, that that could allow us to avoid some of these these flaws in the in the current system. So I want to go even further mm-hmm. and say it's even more complicated because there is no best oncologist, mm-hmm. and what you should do is get several different opinions from different oncologists and try to triangulate what's going on and. In my view, with with the credentialism, you'll think that, well, first of all, they have like s- standards of care, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, these the AMA and, uh, you know, uh, insurance companies and the government will be like, here's the only correct way to treat cancer. And so uh, that way, everyone's doing the best thing. Now, in practice... That's not what's going to happen, right? It's not going to be the case that everyone's doing the best thing. Instead, they're, they're probably going to settle on what a committee decided, and it's going to be like the lowest common denominator uh, type solution. And um, so uh, it, in my view, like it, maybe this is kind of a web of trust type model of having several different um, uh, oncologists or whatever the situation is, engineers, um, weighing in because there's it, it, it is in any kind of specialized field people have different opinions even the top experts will have different views and in it, when we kind of simplify to well you know he's an oncologist who went to harvard medical school surely he knows everything it's like well no that's not I think also to your point with like the, the, the proof of work versus proof of stake. It's like when you when you make a block and you get the proof of work, like that does emerge as like that is effectively the true block unless, you know, obviously there's like a reorg or something, but it's it's this thing that, that sort of emerges and with the credentialism, if uh like I don't think you can just like top down impose like, ah, this is a good credential. It's like that credential itself has to be based off having done all of the work to prove itself as a credential. Anyone can, I mean, I can go print, yeah. I'll, I'll go print you a certificate right now if you want to be an oncologist. Um, I can I can make you all kinds of doctors if you, if you want. But, um, you know, part of part of what also matters is just like results. You can have the guy who's like, oh, he, he has Harvard, whatever. And, you know, he has, he has his degree and uh, training and all of that. Um, you can see how he handles his patients. And then there could be the crazy guy online who is like, he's not credentialed at all. He's just kind of helping people in his garage. And yet he has reproducible data that suggests that he's uncovered some, you know, thing that they didn't want you to know about or something. And the reproducible data actually suggests that there's a reason to believe that this actually does have results, in which case it's like, 
I don't know. I'm going to at least give give this person a, a fair sort of um, uh, open-mindedness. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of like completely so makes the credentials, not but, completely, but it, it kind of, you know, devalues them. Well, the, the thing is that that's actually how credentials work. They just work in a um, like extremely s- slow pace. So there is a reason why a degree from Harvard means more to you than a degree from, let's uh, say, Oregon I don't know, public school or like some other institution you've never heard of, right? Or um, So it all comes down to the limitations of our brain in terms of processing for information about these social signals, right? Um, there is, we can process only very little, I mean, um, maybe several hundreds, maybe several thousands of people we can keep track of reputation of, right? So we need to be able to somehow in order to function this like really large society, we need to be able somehow to group them together. And that's essentially what a degree from, uh, let's say, Harvard or like some other school is, right? It's tens of thousands of people that went through that school and collectively they've built up reputation, right? Because people encounter people who have a Harvard degree um, and collectively this forms of some reputation that now everyone else who gets that degree in the future, they get to participate in that reputation, but they also get to shape that reputation. So that's the reason this changes very, very slowly, right? And um, this causes lots of different problems that we can go into in a second. But um, but that's that's how credentials effectively work. That's the reason why we're using them, right? Because they do carry information, they do carry signal. Um, it's just that they're very uh, slow to adapt, so it's not a very, not, not, a, not, a, not a good, a good tool for transferring information um, and it's also easy to manipulate so that's uh, another deep flaw of that model so what are some of the solutions well i mean so let's maybe tr- start with um identifying the problem precisely right so one problem is that it moves very slowly right so let's say you have a whole bunch of people go through um like since we're using this example of harvard right how long will it take if they if they're performing really poorly right if they if they don't meet the expectations that we would have with the title right and as pierre said okay there is actually someone in the room who proves that no i actually know more about the law and like i can actually convince people with you know like how i behave how i act over time that the guy with this credential, he was full of shit, right? This has to happen many, 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 many times over a long period of time for this information to spread um, across the society and for Harvard's credential, uh, the, the value of Harvard's credential to, to drop. Um, so it's a very slow process, right? So it's primarily about its speed and accuracy here. And the second aspect is that it's controlled by a hierarchical institution, right? So once you have this uh, valuable credential established, and suddenly it becomes a very very valuable target for multiple different groups which might want to use it for their own you know like uh, for their own purpose and i think we're actually seeing this with um with universities quite a lot where um you know like whoever gains control over like how a given institution acts and behaves well now they have this very valuable credential that can help advance a cer- certain ideological cause and the same thing happens, for example, with um, could happen with Nobel Prize, right? Another another very valuable credential that there is a, a handful of people who are actually deciding who's going to be awarded that credential, and you know who's going to be awarded that credential then carries a lot of weight in terms of like how things shape out in other places. So yeah, and now people who you know drone strike people without due process uh, are able to win Nobel Peace Prizes. So. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, w- w- um, what, what I'm getting at is 
this is a this is a problem, right? Like if these credentials can be captured through the capture of a hierarchical institution that awards them, that's a vulnerability. So ideally, we would want to have a system that uh, does not have this big lag of time. It's much faster in terms of like uh, in information moves much much quicker through through this network, um, and is also resistant to to capture, right? Um, and that's the reason we've been working on this algorithmic approach because. What we're trying to do is to um, to do like we're trying to do fundamentally the same thing. We're trying to um, send like capture the signal and, and spread it through the network faster than um, awarding a Harvard degree does, right? Because that's effectively what it is: is uh, a bunch of people who themselves um, are experts in a given field pick a bunch of other people that they think are uh, potentially good at becoming experts themselves and then train them. And then they say, okay, I think these, these people are now competent in that field. Right. And it's, it's a, it's a collective of people then, um, saying that, okay, this person is, is potentially an expert and this just could happen in many different ways. And one of those ways is what we're seeing on Twitter, right? Like we created this list of uh, Bitcoin Twitter by looking at collectively who you guys pay attention to. Right. And it turned out to be quite, quite effective um, approach to that. And you could imagine that this approach could be extended to any field practically, right? I mean, um, there is this concept concept of impact scores in science, but the algorithm is actually not very good. Um, and it's again, like trapped in multiple different, um, let's say uh, inefficiencies and um, it could, could be done much better. But what if instead of looking at, you know, who has the, who has the, uh, who worked, who has a, let's say, a good degree or whatever, who is the oncologist that other oncologists um, pay attention to? Or who who is the oncologist that other oncologists would send, you know, their own daughter or their own son if, you know, they had cancer? Uh, so I often um, think about this in the context that if I have, let's say, if someone in my family gets sick, I will go on the internet, I will try to look for, okay, who's the best doctor in this context? But I asked a bunch of um, doctors over the years, okay, if, if someone got sick in a, you know, um, and it's a, it's a something that you yourself cannot deal with, like, how would you go about finding the best, uh, person to deal with that? And they always told me the same thing. Okay. I would pick up the phone. I would call a bunch of people, you know, like in this hospital, this hospital, this hospital, I would ask them, okay, who's the best, uh, specialist, you know, on, you know, on X. And that's a difference between being part of an expert community and being an outsider of an expert community. And what we're, trying to figure out is how can we bridge those, those two things, right? So that every single person in the world has an access to finding the best specialist, the way that doctors, you know, look for the best specialist, right? When, when they have someone sick in their family. And that's a very hard problem that, um, I mean, hasn't been solved for a reason, right? Like there's a reason, like we've been using these credentials for a reason because this is the best solution available that was available to us at the time when, when we invented these credentials, sort of the same way as, um, it it makes perfect sense to order you know a car on your phone and someone else has an app you know and they come and pick you up and you have the you know you pay through the phone, but the reason we have taxis is that we had the problem of okay I need to go from point A to point B and I don't have a vehicle. Th this problem is much older than mobile phones and you know online payments and so on. So we solved it the way that we could a hundred years ago, but now there are better ways there are way better ways we can solve it with the modern technology. And yet this old system still persists because it has a staying power. And I think it's similar with credentials. Like um, we can replace them with something much better. 
Um, it's just it's going to take time and there is going to be lots of resistance from the system just because it has the staying power. So how do we get from quantifying attention on Twitter to uh, competence? Because to, in my mind, they're rather orthogonal. Well, so what we're trying to, to give you is a tool to understand which, and that's the reason we're, we're not calling this influence anymore, we're calling it attention, right? Because we're trying to give you tools that then you can make up your own mind about like who to trust. And this is again about like running this very expensive calculation on a very large scale that's impossible to run in your, in your brain. And we're just trying to move part of the calculation on a chip, um, which is just much more efficient. But fundamentally, it comes down to the same process of a community decides who they trust, um, and then another community decides who they trust, and then maybe between different communities, communities decide who they trust. And if you can have that calculation run on a computer chip, you can still rely on this a communal mechanism of deciding, okay, who's trustworthy and who's not trustworthy. What you have to do, though, as an as an individual end user of that, is to decide which communities you trust, right? But that's much easier than deciding on per individual basis, do I trust this person, do I not trust this person, right? Or trying to find on every single situation, trying to find an expert. It's much easier to find a set of communities that you deem trustworthy and you can you can test the whole collective and then assume, okay, if this collective trusts that individual, then I can extend that trust in most situations, right? But in, and so in the context of Twitter, yeah. when I look at Hive1, I, I trust that the people on that list are going to have interesting 280 character tweets. Mm -hmm. Nothing beyond that, right? Because nothing could be assumed beyond that. And, and now let's take the example. You could apply Hive One to GitHub, right? Mm -hmm. To an open source project on GitHub, and then you could trust, for example, that that person's going to have pull requests that get attention from other developers, for example. And you mentioned, you know, medical journals and uh, in academia, this this issue of like the. Um, in, in my mind, the the problem there is because those journals have gatekeepers and mm -hmm. they have this peer review thing that is not, it's opaque. Um, and so you don't know how much attention uh, 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 something got necessarily other than the citations it gets afterwards, which could be highly political and it's just kind of, um, but let's say all of that moved on to GitHub and all science was open source and all of the comments on these papers were, you know, in pull requests, then you'd have the uh, richness of data needed to uh, get some more uh, refined, accurate scores of attention. Yeah. And you could apply that to any field, right? If architecture was open source, because in my mind, like the, the cool thing about Twitter is that, you know, the, the data is open source ish, right? Enough to, to, to be able to do this analysis. So Twitter is a very um, Twitter is a very important discovery layer, right? It's 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 a fantastic tool for um, very quick and uh, uh, cheap uh, information discovery, right? Because it's it's served in a very short form, but it's not very good at digging deep. Um, so the way we think about this is that there are social graphs everywhere, right? Social graphs in the sense of you can actually map these connections between 
individuals, institutions, and so on, on a graph, and you can analyze these relationships. So we started by doing this on Twitter, but we're now looking at um, indexing academic research papers, uh, indexing podcasts, um, indexing VC deals, or um, you know, uh, indexing lists of conference speakers, Reddit, GitHub, um, uh, pretty much anything, right? Like eventually we want to index those all kinds of different social graphs and bring them into a single index that you will be able to query. Uh, so that's where it becomes a, a complete different in different infrastructure, right? That you can use for multiple different purposes. How do you cluster a community? Because, you know, as uh, Beautyon on Twitter likes to say, there's like, there is no we, mm -hmm. you know? So like people mm -hmm. say the Bitcoin community, but what is that? Because like to a real outsider, the Bitcoin community in, it, like includes Vitalik Buterin, but mm -hmm. ask a lot of who we'd call Bitcoiners, or who I would call Bitcoiners, they would probably disagree with that statement. Yeah. Um, and even within this so-called Bitcoin community, there's tons of factions. There's people who have, you know, more of a devotion to one particular set of projects and then another group who are interested in another set of projects. And there's people who are more interested in one aspect of sort of the ideas around Bitcoin and its implications versus people with another set. And it becomes very fractalized. Mm -hmm. um, and at some point, you know, like, you have to kind of make a judgment as to, you know, how do you go about clustering that? Like what yeah. what defines a community? That's probably the hardest problem that we've um, we've been working on so far um, that I would say we still haven't solved entirely, but maybe I can talk about like how we are thinking of solving that because you're right. Um, um, there is no discrete boundaries between communities as in it's not zero or one, it's, it's a zero to one, right? So it's always a scale and it's going to differ person by person, they will have slightly different opinions. Whereas as a user, um, you would expect a, a discrete uh, list of names, right? So this person is a member, this person is not a member. So that's of course a very technical, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge to bridge those, those, do, those two realities. So the way we're thinking about this is, first of all, we don't want to make we don't want to make a subjective choice. We don't want to make that decision. Okay, this this person is part of a community. This person is not part of a community. So it has to be done algorithmically. And it has to be done without um, any decision on our end. So the way we've been thinking about approaching this problem is we're building a feedback loop where it's very important for us to build um, uh, to build adoption within those communities, right? And that's the reason we've been focused so much on working with Bitcoiners because this is the first community that actually embraced what we what we're building. And we've been collecting feedback from some of you know hardcore insiders in this community. Um, so I'll, I'll give a shout out to to Wiz, who's been one of the most helpful um, helpful Bitcoiners in, in that regard, right? So he's given me so much feedback that was instrumental in improving the model early on. Because he would tell me like, oh no, this this like this is not a Bitcoiner, right? Or yeah, this is a Bitcoiner. He or she should be on the list, right? And then I would ask him why. Okay, tell me tell me the story behind this person. And so we 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 went through this process uh, dozens, probably hundreds of times with different people, and then we were able to match those backstories of individual accounts with patterns we've been seeing the data, and step by step we were able to identify specific things that happen. And for example, someone was was part of a Bitcoin community, but then during the fork wars, you know, they got kicked out, right? Um, so we're they kicked themselves out. Oh, let's let's be let's be clear here, okay? Nobody's 
Okay, sorry. All right, the, 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 from 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 the <laughs> from the perspective that we're looking at this, right? Like, it's yeah. what's important is that they're no longer considered as part of that community. Yeah. So this leaves a trace in the social graph, right? Like, we we can actually see and identify this, and we can realize, oh, okay, so these people were part of that community, and they're no longer considered to be part of that community, right? Is so, this seen from like unfollows? Like, you see someone like has a dramatic. No, we. Uh, so it's a little bit more complicated than that there th like at this point we're we're building um understanding of the structures in the cl uh, in, in the social graph on many different levels so it could be the um the the uh, how who follows whom and like to what degree there there is a density between specific accounts but it can also be like um order of stack so uh, twitter twitter actually shows you where in the stack of follows you are so if you if someone has been following for a very long time Right, and followed since other people, then you are going to be very low on their follow stack. So from this, we can reconstruct. Actually, we can we can um, we can reconstruct sort of like go back in time, and we can even see which communities emerge from which com which other communities and so on. So, for example, there are traces of Bitcoin community in Ethereum community, and there are traces of Bitcoin and Ethereum community in Polkadot community. Right, and you can actually trace it all back. And because we've been able to reconstruct this, like sort of passed from the structure of the graph, now we can clean up, clean it up, right? Because there is a bunch of Bitcoiners that otherwise would show up in, as a Polkadot community members, and that obviously makes no sense, right? Because those Bitcoiners wouldn't identify themselves as members of the Polkadot community, and Polkadot community wouldn't recognize them as members of that community. And yet, if you just ran, ran a standard clustering algorithm, that's what would come up, right? So these are the type of things that we're doing, but um, on the let's say, uh, trying to understand the structure better. But in the end, there is going to be have to, uh, there's has to be going to be part of a process where we have this continuous refinement where um, we will probably have to deploy some kind of a um, deep neural net, net model. We, we, we're not doing that right now, by the way, like it's, it's purely like um, just uh, graph analysis. Um, but down the line, we probably will have to have a model where um, we collect feedback from very large number of people from you know tens of thousands of communities where they mark uh, okay this person is a member of, of that community or this person is not a member of that community so we have this what, what you mentioned right people people have different opinions and then we'll feed these data points these you know hundreds of thousands millions of data points we'll feed that into the uh, neural net to learn off right so to recognize okay what are all of these different patterns that these you know tens of thousands of humans that they you know that translates to their subjective opinions about whether this person is is a member or not or isn't a member right and because you can have this collected from tens of thousands of communities but it's still the same single model right it's the same model applied to every single one of those then the more communities you have the more users you have who are actually submitting that 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 training data the more accurate the model can become um and that's sort of like the end state that we're we're looking at so on, on the topic of um, you know the fall from grace, the uh, the people who get downranked. I mean, I have noticed that the the following seems to be sticky. So you don't just automatically lose a bunch mm -hmm. of followers, um, but the engagement, the likes and the retweets, that seems to fall off a cliff. Mm -hmm. um, do you look at that the engagement? Not yet. Okay. We will, yeah. but no. So so far, the model relies only on two, let's say, data points. So one is who follows you, um, and or, or who you follow. So the following follow graph, 
and the second is like your description. So we will extract. Um, so we will extract uh, uh, tokens from from your description. We'll try to identify words that appear the most often in particular communities, and then we'll use those two signals together to form clusters, and then automatically give them names. So, yeah, uh, this reminds me. There was a piece about. Um, somebody wrote a classifier for tweets to determine whether they are toxic or not. <laughs> so I think that for each community, you should have a sub communities of toxic versus non-toxic uh, parts of the community. I think that'd be interesting. So th these are, so th this is something we probably wouldn't build ourselves, but what's cool about, um, well, at least what I find cool about this is that uh, with the tools that we're, we're trying to open up to everyone, it would be relatively easy to build this kind of classifier um, that, you know, like with a, a little bit of technical knowledge, you would actually be able to put it together, you know, over, over a weekend. There's something interesting to me about, it, it almost feels like a paradox. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, maybe your mm -hmm. ideas as to why it might, may or may not be a paradox, but, you know, uh, there, there, was a, there was a book by a guy named James C. Scott called Seeing Like a State. And mm -hmm. one of the big ideas in it is this idea of legibility. And this is part of, you know, earlier I was talking about names and how names were imposed on people. Um, different, different social structures of various kinds, social technologies, uh, so to speak, as well as like physical technologies, have been imposed on people um, as a means to better control them. So he actually has another book that makes the argument that a lot of the rise of agriculture uh, was a mean to tie people more to taxable assets because, you know, bundles of wheat is much easier to tax than a bunch of cows. So there's this idea of legibility of trying to be able to put people in more boxes so that you can, you know, do what you want. And this obviously we, we can see a gazillion ways in which this has led to highly powerful centralized um, institutions that we have some uh, major disagreements about. On the other hand, you know, this whole Hive One project is this this means of trying to find a way to solve these issues in a more sort of decentralized fashion, like where we can look at this decentralized system and then create legibility and mm -hmm. try to make sense of it. And so it's like you never really escape uh, this issue of, you know, basically everyone, whether it's centralized, decentralized, Etc. You're always like trying to put people in boxes um, to try to kind of glean information. Do you see a difference in how Hive One mm -hmm. makes use of that legibility from centralized? I mean, obviously Hive One itself is centralized, For but now. Um, how those differ? Yeah. So, I mean, it's again useful to think like why we always have to have these these systems that you just described, right? Like. Um, our behavior in a, in a group um, depends highly on the potential consequences from that behavior, right? So the fact that other people will remember how I acted and how I behaved in different, different situations affects how I'm going to behave, right? Like there's a reason reputation is so important. And again, reputation is, um, to, to the extent that reputation can be this, um, let's say, regulating factor is limited by our ability, our brain's ability to process information about large groups of people. So you might have heard this um, ter um, this term Dunbar number before, right? And I think, uh, so what was brilliant about Dunbar's number is that he observed, he, he, it seems like he managed to quantify like what are these um, uh, limits of our brain 
in terms of like processing this collective um, social status, right? Because most people identify Dunbar number with num with one the number 150, but it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. It divides and multiplies by three, right? So it goes down to 50, um, then 15, five, you know, like one point something, and then it also goes up um, to, I think, like around 5,000. And if you trace different types of um, groups of people, right, whether it's a village or it's a family unit or, you know, different army units and so on, they, they typically form within those uh, those stages. And it's not because we cannot remember more people. That's a common misconception, right? It's not that we cannot remember more than 100, 100 people and how they behaved, but it's also about remembering how, like, what do people think about each other, right? So it's um, you have to kind of square that number. It's it, so basically, you're saying you can know more than 150 nodes, but you're not going to be able to know, you know, more than X, you know, uh, 150 times three, etc. Um, uh, edges on on the graph between those nodes. Yeah, I mean, so uh, it seems to be that. Uh, I mean, people can effectively be part of more than one group that would have, you know, like 150 or uh, or even more people in that group. But these groups themselves seems to have a limit or, you know, like fall into these these brackets and then the way they interact with each other changes. And it seems to me reasonable to assume that, okay, this is probably because the this because of this importance of understanding relationships between those different people, not just like, one-to-one -one your relationship with that person right like you also want to know what the person a thinks about person b and person c and what person b and so on right so this is a very costly data to collect and process in your brain right and that's the reason we have this limitation and the consequences of that in history was that um, we had like people had almost no mobility so uh, reputation acted as a very uh, so this community acted as a very effective reputation system in a village but it also meant that you couldn't really move from one village to another this was very difficult right and if someone came to move to your village um, people would be very 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 suspicious of that person um, and if you for some reason if you get banished from your village it, you know it would be very difficult for you to find like a new community so having these modern reputation systems also means that we have unprecedented social mobility, right? We can, you can move from one city to another and it's totally fine. You can move from one country to another and it's totally fine, right? But that also has the, the flip side because mm -hmm. in that, if you get banished from you know one of the villages, you go on to yeah. another village and make up a new name and all of that. But now also, you know, there are people who wake up and it's like they're the most hated person on the internet and, mm -hmm. you know, their their lives are, are ruined in, in certain ways um, to, to the various degrees. So it kind of has that that you know it, it has that that potential for reward, but there's also a great risk to it as well. Absolutely, yeah. So I mean, now I think we're going to through through some kind of a transition to a new approach, right? Because we went from these you know small webs webs of trust in in local communities to then more centralized and and more scalable system. And now with internet and with these communities that emerge on, online, we seem to have some kind of uh, um, uh, two competing systems in a way, right? Like on one hand, you have, you, you're participating in these uh, um, state um, identity systems, right? And that gives you this social mobility, but also has very poor mechanisms for updating information about, you know, like uh, credibility and all of those things. On the other hand, you have these communities forming online that act more like a village 
but scaled to just massive size. And um, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, you know, given all of that, uh, how has working on Hive One changed your personal behavior towards Twitter? Hmm. Hmm. I guess I'm much more uh, I'm much more su suspicious of the beliefs I hold, um, and I noticed something interesting is that, that when I when I meet people and they tell me about um, how do they feel about like some current political issue or like two political issues, almost always I can predict what's their view on like a whole bunch of other, and this applies to myself as well, right? So. And it maps very well to the clusters that we map, right? So these beliefs on certain topics, they're very, very consistent. And very rarely I see people who are part of one community to divert, divert from like what's the you know sort of consensus, quote unquote, on you know what's the right belief in a in a like uh, about a particular thing happening. So I've become much more suspicious of ideas that are in my own head. Um, about what's right, what's wrong. Um, and I'm trying to ask myself more and more often, okay, is this the, the, the sort of the communities that I, I identify myself with and I follow a lot, do they hold the same belief? And, you know, is this, uh, is this uh, an accident or is this really that I derive this from first principles and this is what I truly believe or is it just that I want to uh, uh, accept that meme that, that comes to me, right? I, I think that's something that has more it, now i'm seeing that it, it it's it's placed much more important role uh, and it's much more powerful mechanism that i realized before yeah that's it's very interesting um i, I can kind of see like both good and bad and mm -hmm. i think i think it's it, it could even be a matter of like getting over a over a hump mm -hmm. so that that hump is like you you start to like you know have this doubt because it's like everyone uh, believes all this stuff and so it's just you know it's it's purely because they saw whatever was on their timeline etc etc getting past that hump would be like you're saying getting to the core of the first principles and realizing like you're actually forging your ideas that you do have better so it's like no I yes I, I, I see these people but that's also because I went through the hard work of coming to a conclusion and these are the people who I agree with and so it, it can it can be a sign of someone being a midwit. It can also be a sign of galaxy brain. Yeah, although um, I think that perhaps mm, another angle, like another way to think about this is that there is something very fundamental changing about how we as humans operate because so far we formed formed networks, like from, from groups of people primarily around geographical proximity, right? So you would interact the most with the people that you were simply physically close to. And what's happening now is that more and more of our interactions are uh, stemming from groups that emerge around shared ideas. And I think this has a meaningful impact into how ideas form in our heads, right? Because like fundamentally, if you have a group that forms around shared location, the, let's say, ideological ideas uh, will be quite more diverse in that group. Whereas if you have a group that forms because they share a given idea, well, that's going to be a monolith, then at least when it comes to the core and like what's close to that core idea. 
And it's going to be diverse in many other ways. It's going to be diverse in the sense, okay, these people will be spread all over the world, right? They're going, they're going to be diverse in many other ways, uh, in many other senses, but they will be very monolithical in the sense of like ideas that they share. And I think that this has big implications for how our, our society will operate going forward, but it also has a very big implications in terms of how our own minds work. So, um, there's yeah. certain things that I would expect to have extremely shared. And so it's actually, you know, uh, Bitcoin isn't a good example mm -hmm. where, you know, to to have a good global money, it has to be this thing that's actually useful to everyone in the global division of labor. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense. Like it would actually, it would be kind of a bad sign if people from some parts of the world or whatever, oh, we don't like it or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, you, you would expect the better a money is, that more people from more places are all going to share this idea that this is great money. There's also other things about, you know, life that are kind of fundamental to us all that we can expect some kind of like shared convergence. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a bad thing. I'm just saying it's a big change. Um, right. Mm -hmm. So for you, having seen this, this is all it, it allows for more self-reflection yeah, and I mean, it started with a question like what what changed my own perception of Twitter, I think, right? Like, um, so that that's the biggest um, that's the biggest, let's say, personal realization that I had over the last the recent months that I've been trying to actively put to use and be a little bit more suspicious of, about like things that I think I believe, right? Like, okay, do I really believe that? Yeah. One benefit yeah. here is if Hive One, you know, operates for many of these communities, yeah. you as someone who is in the Bitcoin community, you, you know, and you saw that there was like an Ethereum community or, you know, a dollar community. I think there was a big dollar community with blue checks mostly. Um, you could see that community and you could you could get a sense of like who is most likely going to be able to offer the steel man for that alternative view. So even though things get clustered that way, it also makes it kind of easier to jump into that other community and see, let me check out that guy and see if that guy is capable of of making me question my beliefs as opposed to, you know, just kind of being stuck in, in you know, your 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 way of thinking without having any knowledge of, of how to perhaps go about questioning it in a way that you hadn't previously considered. Yeah. Um, and there is a... So th this uh, ties a little bit to this concept of um, uh, filter bubbles that I often argue with with friends about because I think there's actually an advantage to being that kind of person that you described who can steal them in an argument um, and it's it's it sits at a very low level right like it's um, um, I'm not too worried about like people. Um, um, staying in these filter bubbles and um, uh, staying set in like one, let's say, set of ideas, because there is a big incentive for being this bridge between different groups, right? Like if you can sit and sort of be a, a proxy or like you can facilitate the negotiation between different groups, that puts you in a very valuable position. So um, with the technology that we're building, you'll be able to spot the people who are actually uh, let's say respected by two communities that otherwise might not have lots in common, right? Like Bitcoin and Ethereum community. Um, I think that's a good example where there's generally lots of clashes, but there are several people or there's a handful of people who generally get along with both of those communities, right? There's not many of them, but there are several of them. And I think it's very valuable to know who they are. And this applies to many other groups. Um, and we would 
probably be better off being able to spot people who um who have this ability to to translate between those groups right it's probably a better way of communicating between these different different groups that have very different ideologies than like all of them clashing with each other okay why don't we just have those bridges those translators that help us navigate right and we i think you uh, we originally got in touch because i read your uh transcript of your talk where you were Oh, and I, I was pro, pro filter bubble. Yeah, uh, I love filter bubbles because it allows us to, you know, we can we can know that we have a set of shared assumptions, yeah. so we can work off that logic and see where that takes us and see where those ideas take us instead of always having the person who comes in is like, yeah, but you know, you know, define blockchain. It's yeah. like okay, we already got past that. Let's like let's talk about um, you know Bitcoin. We want to talk about Bitcoin in in this room. Yeah, but th that's what I was getting at. That I think I think they're useful in many ways, right? So, um, at the, but at the same time, there are these uh, connectors between do, those two diff like different bubbles, right? That also play a very important, useful role. I also think that filter inherently means that some is getting through. Yeah. Right, and it's just the it, ideally, it's just the noise that's getting filtered out, um, and. You know, just to put a wrinkle on the connector, let's take the example of the uh, Ethereum uh, supply gate issue. <laughs> and um, I, I think that first off, it would not have erupted if Michael and I were not in our cult, right, echo chamber, because having the the tribalism is what enables culture shock. If everyone is um midwit cos cosmopolitan we're all the same it's just a big gray blob uh then we don't have a clash of ideas mm -hmm. um so then the second is that the connector in this situation was andreas antonopoulos and he wrote a very long thread and he went on a couple of podcasts explaining why there's not a problem here and it all just completely missed the point where he thinks of himself as a connector. Other people think of him as a connector, uh, but he fundamentally didn't really understand what the critique was of the Ethereum supply problem. Uh, instead, he, um, he strawmanned it. And uh, so I think that in, in an effort, I don't know if he was trying to be diplomatic or if he earnestly, uh, he fell for the straw man himself, um, but that was just uh, just picking out an example here, um, and yeah. Do do we have example of like ambassadors that are uh, dual citizens? Um. So uh, there are like actual academic cryptography researchers who, to my knowledge, have made contributions to uh, different like cryptographic primitives in different contexts of like Bitcoin. Ethereum. I'm also meaning in like politics. Yeah. Like literally, like you oh, know, do, it, when when a country, if I'm if I'm you know, yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, well, so let's take uh, domestically here in the U.S., like Joe Manchin, you know, <laughs> uh, and uh, I think both sides don't like him because uh, of that, or uh, you know, maybe like Mitt Romney or something. Um, but internationally, you know, we've got the Pope. Uh, he he tries to you know make some connections, but uh, but he's also he's also like an independent 
sovereign un unto himself. Right. So I'm saying like, you know, when when, you know, a country sends an ambassador to another country, uh, do they have someone who's a citizen of that other country or do they tend towards having someone who's only a citizen sh citizen of the country they're representing and they're going over knowing that I have the best capacity to be able to, um, you know, speak upon my my nation's behalf um, and also, I've studied your country enough to best know how to translate between our different interests and negotiate them, et cetera, yeah. because that's different than like someone like, you know, uh, if, if someone has dual citizenship and it's like, hey, I'm, I'm friends with both of y'all. Yeah, they're a double agent. They could betray you. You don't know. You, you need somebody whose interests are aligned, but also who can negotiate. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, I... I I don't keep up as much with the Ethereum community. I don't know if I could, you know, name names. And I'm not going to name names either way. But I, I do know that there's plenty of Bitcoin people who have who have kind of like here. Let me give like the the steel man best case for various Ethereum things, and of course knock it down. But you know, kind of do their best mm -hmm. to try to do it in a diplomatic manner. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Well, so yeah, I guess um, let's see where where were we at with uh, the uh, yeah the cult echo chambers, um, and the um, it, it feels like sometimes uh, we we can't make progress if we don't have a filter, because then it's like opens you up to a denial of service attack, where you're having to respond to everything, and that's probably like one of my least favorite things about Twitter is that it um, when somebody uh, replies to your tweet, then you feel an urge to reply to them in order to defend your good name and to, uh, you know, uh, not get ratioed or things like that. Meanwhile, um, they have like 200 numbers in their profile name and they yeah. just joined and yeah, they, they got three followers, but it gets under your skin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe useful to think about this outside of like just the context of Twitter. But even in science, we've had these historically, we've had these moments where there was a split between, you know, like in the, in the discipline, and there was there was a group of outcasts, right? And they developed some ideas within this small group, like the, the let's say the the the, less, the rest of the field thought of them, you know, as idiots or whatever else, right? But they they still in their small echo chamber they developed these ideas, and then over time, you know, they obviously you need some time you need like a group of people working on some complicated ideas and and, and, and you need yeah. the, the other group to die like literally right that was that was the uh, uh, thomas thomas kuhn yeah his paradigm yeah. Of, of yeah yeah i mean so it, it could be that you know these people who actually split split up that they're the crazy ones right like it happens both ways right but you have to have this ability of okay i split off with a bunch of people and we're working on this set of ideas that are completely not accepted by the, the mainstream cluster right and then this new set of ideas also needs some time to develop you know to grow and only then it can challenge the, the established set of ideas and it have, has happened over and over and over again with things that you know we just thought were you know the, the good ideas and they were completely challenged so um i think it's a necessary mechanism that right now perhaps there are some people who are trying to um, kill off that option, um, which I think is very dangerous. Well, they, they, I mean, I think that throughout human history, they, yeah. they have like just by definition of it. Um, but now like if, if these social networks have network effects that are so strong that um, 
it becomes impossible to split off, mm -hmm. uh, then it could be an unprecedented problem. Yeah. I mean, you can think of the, like, uh, in my opinion, that the main problem with social networks today is just the cost of exit. It's very high and it's artificially very high, right? Because that's fundamentally at, uh, that's what creates the network effects. Um, when you want to leave Facebook, it's very expensive. Uh, let's say f you've been using Facebook for a decade, right, or more, or more. And when you decide, okay, I don't like this, what this platform is doing, I want to leave Facebook. It's very, very, very costly to you, right? Because well, you're losing connection to all of those people, hundreds of people that you might be connected to over there. And it's very cheap for Facebook to lose you as an individual, right? Because well, they they get to keep all of the graph besides this one node and like all of those interactions, all of this history. Um, so it's very inexpensive for them to lose you. It's very expensive for you to leave, which creates a very unhealthy dynamic, right? Where, okay, sure, you can leave, right? The same way as in theory, you can move if you don't like the you know election outcomes, right? You can leave. It's just very, very costly to you. And while leaving a country has sort of like natural costs to it, I mean, you can you have to physically move. When it comes to social networks, it's an artificially imposed cost by those networks. So uh, I think that the, um, I might be getting a little bit off topic here, but I think- There's that, no topic. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think that the, the debate about the problem of social media has went completely in the wrong direction over the last years because it was all about like breaking breaking down those big corporations. And um, this, this is not going to change anything, right? Because whichever part got, got broken um, you know, which, whichever of the broken parts gets to keep this core of the social graph, right, right, where it's very expensive to leave, then this part is going to grow into the behemoth anyways, right, because it has the network effect. So what's critical is that we find a way how to lower the cost of switching from one platform to another, right, without losing everything that you've built up on the mass of that, you know, that social graph information, because then it, the system will naturally balance itself out when, when it's more expensive for Facebook to lose you as a user and it's and for it's e it's cheaper for you as a user to leave then suddenly this platform has to work very hard to satisfy you as a user right they cannot just do whatever they want with with your data they cannot serve you garbage ads they cannot you know do like play with your with your feed and all of those things because then you're going to leave to a competition right the reason all of these things happen today is that is the other way around they know you cannot leave right or that you won't leave because it's it's so costly to you what's the solution i mean uh i i imagine uh, my fantasy is that the lightning network um is piggybacking off of bitcoin's monetary network effects to build identity network effects and then each lightning node hits its own identity and then that becomes a social graph on top mm -hmm. That's my uh, ideal world. So that could be one one way of um, of solving this. I, like the way I think of this is that we need a universal social graph, and like this is probably not a not a very good name because it evokes maybe some like yeah. this this uh, topic ideas. But the the idea here is that you would have um, a number of identifiers that you can tie together with a cryptographic proof, um, and then whether you know it's your Facebook identifier or your Twitter identifier or you know your um, your wallet address, whatever else, right? You can tie a bunch of those together. And if they exist on this open infrastructure, then a new network comes in. And because you can tie this 
identifier that you created this new network, well, this, this network could create a UI where with a click of a button, you sort of follow everyone else you followed on all of these other platforms, right? So now, or for example, let's say that um, um, another new, the new social media platform um, shows up and you want to try that platform, but you don't know any, anyone over there, but there's a bunch of Bitcoiners who are on Twitter, right? Maybe you don't follow those, those particular Bitcoiners, but you can decide, okay, I want to follow everyone who's in the Bitcoin cluster on Twitter. I want to follow on that, on that new network, right? So you form sort of like a new, your, your, your social circle there, but they're all Bitcoiners, right? Or whatever other community that you're interested in. So that, that's an example of ways how we can lower that cost. And of course, this still doesn't remove that, this imbalance entirely, but it, it goes in the right direction. So the more of that open infrastructure we create, the easier it is to, to move these social groups between platforms, the better we're going to, the better off we're going to be. Sounds like theoretically something that um, Noster, if Noster could yeah. take off, could fill a void like that because everyone has a unique identifier, you know, with their public key, like you're saying with Lightning, um, and then you know the relays, the the platforms decide. Michael, we, we don't have time. We're up on time now. <laughs> well, uh, next episode, Noster, <laughs> we'll have Fiat Jeff on. <laughs> it's good having you on, Matchek. Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Yeah, likewise. <laughs>